So Genesis chapter 4. Now, chapter 4, of course, in the book of Genesis, book of beginnings, and we have the beginnings of many things. It is the book of firsts, and here as we get in chapter 4, we're going to see a number of firsts being revealed again to us. We're going to see the first family being formed, the first shepherd in Abel. You could say the, the first farmer, but I think Adam would take presence, but Cain, uh, a farmer, continue that on. It shows us here the first sibling rivalry, all right? Those of you that have experienced that can say it's biblical, all right? That's why we do this, but it's right here in Genesis 4, the first sibling rivalry, and then sadly, the result of that, the first murder. Crazy. What we see as we move through chapters 4 and then into 5 is the, the dreaded devastation of sin. It's something that you, you can't escape when you go down that road, the consequences that come from sin. And then when we get into chapter 5, we're going to see a repeated phrase happening, and he died, and he died that is the ultimate greatest consequence of sin, of course, that it brings death into the world. Sin has entered the world through Adam, and though sin is living in this world, we don't need to live in sin, all right? I think sometimes we can look at things and go, well, that's just the product of the fall. I'm just a product now of Adam, and so this is my course, I guess. Listen, though sin is in the world, we don't have to be living in sin. And this chapter is going to make that clear for us, I hope and trust, as we go through this. Now, before we get into chapter four, I think what's really interesting is, as we go through God's word, is to see how wonderfully intricately it's put together. And especially in the book of Genesis, we see a number of like patterns that are, are taking place that really begin to reveal this divine authorship of God's word. And so we've seen a few of those already in previous chapters, but let me read to you what, what Hughes writes. And he says this, Moses has exercised great literary care in constructing the story because, again, as in the creation account, sevens and multiples of sevens are used to shape the narrative symmetry. Within verses 1 to 17, the name Abel and the important designation brother each occurs seven times. Cain occurs 14 times, divisible of seven. And whereas in chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, which is the first toledot, which is the, the word toledot is, is generations. It's the way that this book is oftentimes divided up in the divisions of these generations and, and in these toledots. So the name in the first one, the name God, Elohim, occurred 35 times from chapter 2 to 4 to the end of chapter 4, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 4, the second toledot, the words God, the Lord, or the Lord God occur a total of 35 times, again, divisible of 7. The careful Hebrew scholar Gordon Wenham observes, the last verse of chapter 4, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, thus contains the 70th mention of deity in Genesis. Conclusion, there is vast intentionality in this narrative as it instructs us about the essential nature of all mankind. The story of Cain and Abel calls for us to observe well and to take its instruction to heart because we see that God is putting things in place here to say, perk up when you see these kind of patterns forming, look and take note as to what's going on because it's important for us. And we see that evident here in the story of Cain and Abel. Very interesting to share and to look at. Some of you might be going, uh, what? 
But that's fine. Let's just get into God's word here. It says in verse one, chapter four, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So here we see Adam and Eve being fruitful and multiplying just as God had instructed them to do, right? Adam knew his wife. That word knew is not just that they've been hanging out, having coffees, getting to know one another. It's that they've been intimate, all right? Sexually, physically. That's why there's a, a product of a child now. That's that term there, to know them, is to know them very intimately. The two have become one flesh, just as we saw at the end of chapter two when God instructed how man was to come and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now that happened, of course, personally and intimately, but it also became a reality practically and physically as a new life now is formed from the two in, in Cain being born. I think that's very cool. The very, the very recreative and reproductive ability that God has designed into humanity is just a, a marvel of wonder, isn't it? It's just a miraculous thing that you look at and you go, wow, God, how did you do us? And you knit us together and you begin to form us and create that DNA in us right in that womb to make us unique. And, in, and it's just amazing how God does that. Well, Adam and Eve are experiencing this now for the first time. And I'm sure Eve is a little bothered, upset at that curse that was put on her that in, you know, there'll be great pain in childbirth. She's experiencing that now. God, yeah, okay. You're a God of your word. I'm getting to see that now, right? So two children come. Cain, that name Cain means acquired. And that's why she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. It's possible that what Eve is kind of thinking about right now is indeed that, that kind of promise that was given in Genesis 3.15 where God said that through her seed, one would come that would crush the serpent's head. Remember that? So perhaps she's thinking, this is it. Got a child. This is, the, this is the savior to come. This is the guy that God's been promising us. I've acquired a man from the Lord. And so perhaps Eve is having this expectant, uh, expectancy. Ex, I'm making up words here. You know how that goes. She's got this expectancy that Cain is the one that, that God had been mentioning there in Genesis 3.15. It's uh, gonna be, however, quite the opposite. <laughs> Cain is gonna be nowhere near any kind of a savior. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that you know we need to be patient in God's word. We need to be patient in the promises that God has. Sometimes we think, oh, God said it, that's it, I've got to claim, I've got to make that happen right now. And sometimes we rush into things thinking, well, God has made it so. And sometimes, you know, God's, uh, here's what we do know, God's promises always come to fruition, amen? God's promises will never be let down, but they will come to fruition in his timing. And what we do know too is that his timing is 99.9% of the time not our timing. And, and we tend to kind of want to make it happen and, and rush it. And, and yet we're reminded how we need to be patient. Eve is going to have to wait some few thousand years <laughs> before Genesis 3.15 is going to be fulfilled with Jesus coming in the world. I hope, I mean, we don't have to wait a few thousand years for the promises of the Lord to come to fruition. But nevertheless, we know that his word always comes to pass and we need to be patient in that. So Adam and Eve are, are forming a family here now in Cain and Abel, and we see that each of them are carrying out aspects of the family business, right? Abel is a shepherd, always tending, tending the, the sheep, and, and there's Cain who's a farmer. He's tilling the ground. These are, 
are working men. It's something that God has built into each of us. And it's important that I think we, we teach our children and the generations to come to see the importance and the value of work, right? Uh, Adam and Eve are, are right there getting the boys busy, getting them going. I think that's a, an important quality to, to nurture into our children. And I think you see, uh, boy, we've, and not to say all, you know, all younger generations are like that, certainly not. We've got some young generation here, and you guys are fabulous. But, you know, we see within some uh, of younger generations that, I mean, there's just that work ethic that just wasn't there that we see. I mean, I don't think I've got the work ethic that I see in a lot of people that have come before me, let alone those that have come after me now. So it's important that this is something God has built into us. I think it's important to see that there's great value in work, and it's important also, especially important, to lead people into recognizing and discovering what God has truly called them to do. What has God equipped you with? How has God begun to lead you in carrying out his work and, and what he has for you, that calling upon your life? So here they are doing that. Now Abel, we saw Cain's name meant acquired. Abel's name means breath or nothing. It's the same, not the exact same word, but it comes from the same word as that word vanity that we saw in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. It's meaningless, nothing. And, and there's Abel's name meaning breath or nothing. That might have been an unintentional foreshadowing that his life would be cut very short. It's, it's gonna come, it's gonna be like a breath. It's gonna be gone before you know it. And I think it's important just for us to really recognize the, you know, that our life is, as James says, but a vapor. It is like just a breath and how we need to value every day. We need to make the most of every day. We never know when our life is gonna come to an end, do we? And how we need to live, you know, for the, the glory of God and take every moment we've got just to um, be, be living for him, be living in him. Look at verse three with me, reading along, verse three to verse seven, it says this, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So we see in the process of time. In the process of time can be translated as the appointed time or more rightly um, translated as at the end of days. So it seems that this offering had become a customary thing. Perhaps it was like a Sabbath custom or a, a certain period of time where it was at the end of days that the time to bring this offering. So it seems like this has been kind of a customary thing now in doing so. Now the question is, of course you've all seen this and probably asked, why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's offering was not accepted? There's been many answers given and speculation and, and debate made over this. So I might as well add my two cents worth as well to this. Now some like to say that uh, Abel's offering was accepted because it was an animal sacrifice, whereas Cain brought an offering of the harvest. And just as it was when Adam and Eve uh, sinned and they tried to cover themselves, it was God who 
clothed them in animal skins. It was God that provided the, the first sacrifice, and it was an animal sacrifice that was intended. So a lot of people say, well, Abel's coming with the right offering. He's bringing in animal sacrifice. It's by the blood that there's kind of that atonement. And Cain's wasn't that. Now, I don't know if you can make a strong case for that. that there is possibility that's exactly what it is. I don't know if you can make a super strong case for that because there were also other offerings that would come, grain offerings that were very much offered up to the Lord and accepted by the Lord. It was a good offering. So there were times for that to happen. Now, what I think seems to be happening, and this is my opinion, what I think seems to be happening is it's Abel's was... Abel's sacrifice or offering was accepted because um, Abel's offering was the best of what he had. He brought what was best. Cain, on the other hand, brought an offering that says that was of no cost to him. It was just the fruit of the ground, right? Abel's offering was the, the firstborn of his flock. And, and he brought the fat, they're fat with it, the, the, the stuff that God would say, I want you to bring me the fat of that offering. See, the issue wasn't what they brought, but how they brought it. That's what I believe is, is going on here. And it isn't always the way, or, or sorry, that's, that's oftentimes the way it is, even in our relationship with the Lord, that God is looking at the heart and not always the action. But you see, when the heart is right, the action is gonna be right as well. So it's not so much, I don't think, what they're bringing, but in how they're bringing that. And I think as we move along, we'll, we'll kind of see that a little bit here. And we get a good indication from the New Testament that Cain was a person that was sort of bent towards wickedness. Look at what we read in 1 John three twelve. It says this, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Hebrews eleven four by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Jude 11, woe to them for they've gone in the way of Cain. I've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. The way of Cain, I believe could be, as Jude is mentioning, could be one of pride. See, he came devising his own means of approaching God. Abel, as we saw in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abel offered to God. Abel comes in faith saying, God, I'm not worthy. Uh, I don't have anything that's going to make me more right, but what I do have, I bring to you, God. He comes in faith, trusting God to you know, make this right. Whereas Cain, I think, just comes and he brings some, you know, uh, fruit of the ground there, offers it up without that same kind of heart of faith. I think coming in pride, trusting in his own works. Cain put confidence in what he had rather than in what God could bring. And it, we, we read here that his countenance fell. Perhaps implying that he came with this kind of proud, haughty look in what he was offering. And then Cain quickly became angry when God respected Abel's sacrifice and not his own. He thought he deserved better, and as a result, what happened? Cain became very enraged at this situation with God. Now, notice God doesn't quickly rebuke Cain for having this sour kind of attitude, but he simply, and I believe, graciously asks Cain, why are you angry? 
Why, why are you bummed out? See, God is giving Cain an opportunity to make things right here, to repent and make things right. Cain has a chance to recognize his fault or to recognize his heart and his attitude and to do things in a right way to where it'll be accepted by God. Now that term for accepted, when, when it says that he, he accepted these things, it's more rightly translated as lifted up. It says, oh, God is saying, Cain, your sin, your attitude has brought you down. Your countenance has fallen. You're depressed, you're bitter, but if you repent and do what is right, that frown can be turned upside down. You can experience a lifting up of your emotions and your attitudes. It's the first time that word countenance is used and it's repeated a couple times here. That first, that, that biblical you know, principle of first mention is an important one. Because you see, Cain had a chance to humble himself, but instead he rejected the Lord's offer and his sinful attitude was revealed by this physical countenance changing. Cain became upset, angry and bitter, and, and he was physically altered. I think so much, uh, to, to bring it into today, I think so much of what we see today with depression, discouragement, is a result of the Cain syndrome. We haven't come to God and done things his way. We've maybe held on resentment. We've let bitterness grow. We've allowed anger to manifest itself. And we've realized that these things have only hurt ourselves and brought us down. Now listen, I'm not saying that all depression is a result of sin, but sin unchecked will mess with our psyche and carry out a physical weight on us that will oftentimes bring us down. If we don't come and do things the right way before the Lord, as God is giving Cain an opportunity to do. Because he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Will you not be lifted up? Will you not be encouraged and not down and depressed as you are? See, God desires to lift up the downcast, to heal the brokenhearted, to mend the lame. Perhaps you've been down and you've been discouraged, depressed or dismayed. Then look on at Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Don't let sin get a hold of you. Don't let resentment trouble you. Don't let bitterness bind you. Turn it over to God. Experience that forgiveness that he has for you through confession, through repentance. This forgiveness is freeing. It's life-altering because we come to the right altar, the way of Abel in faith and in obedience to what God is requiring of what God finds acceptable. And God lays out the tragic alternative if Cain does not come in this humble approach. He says that sin lies at the door. Notice that right there at the end of verse seven. Sin is lying at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Cain, he's got a choice. God's not just throwing down judgment on Cain for this mishap. And Cain, you got a choice. You can make a decision right now to walk in repentance and to make things right. Sin doesn't need to win out. Now God, interestingly, he personifies or pictures sin as this beast at the threshold, ready to pounce, right? Now I think more so what the issue is is that there's this beast in each of us as a result of the fall. We're born with a sin nature, but we don't just need to give up and give in. God says, listen, you should rule over it. And he's given us the 
the opportunity and the power to do so. We do this when we walk by faith over our, our feelings, when we choose obedience to God's word over fulfillment of the flesh. What's gonna win out? Well, it's the one that you're feeding. What nature is gonna grow and be strengthened? It's the one that you're feeding. You're gonna either be feeding into the spirit or you're gonna be feeding into the flesh, this beast, this sin nature that's looking to have mastery over you. It's the one that you feed that's going to grow and become stronger. So to the spirit, you're gonna reap a bountiful harvest. So to the flesh, and of the flesh, you will reap. Now understand that we're not gonna reach this sinless perfection until we're with Jesus. Until then, we're in a fight, we're in a battle. We need to recognize that. But it's a battle that's worth fighting and it's a battle that we can be victorious in. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says, I like this. He says, we may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. It is the invariable companion of genuine Christian holiness. It is not everything, I'm well aware, but it is something. Do we find in our heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything in the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than many. Meaning, when we are seeing that fight going on, don't give up. Don't cave in. Don't wonder why is this happening. Understand, you're in a better state than many because you are recognizing this is that process of sanctification. Romans 6 11 to 14 says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. God gives us the power to rule over sin. Don't give in, don't cave in, don't say, well, it's just a result of the fall. It doesn't need to be. You have a choice today. God's given us the victory. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. So sin is there trying to have mastery over you. You have the option instead to submit to God and let him rule over you. And it's a much more pleasant outcome when we do. Speaking of outcomes, not a good one for Cain or Abel, I should say. Look at verse eight. Now Cain talked to the Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Verse nine, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now Cain is allowing that sin that's sitting there, lying at the door. Cain opened the door and engaged that sin. And he let it begin to have mastery over him. This anger that was there before God, as his countenance fell, it grew to bitterness. And this bitterness grew to action now in taking 
a life through murder. That's almost that kind of process uh, of sin. James 1, 14 to 16 spells it out for us. It says, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James writes that to say, don't say you're tempted that it's God. No, each of you are tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And sadly, the progression of sin unfolds to where inevitably it brings forth death. Death to ourselves because it separates us from God. But ultimately here with Cain and Abel, we see the result of death happening instantly with another person because of Cain's anger and sin. Now, interestingly, Abel was not the cause of Cain's anger, right? He became the target of Cain's anger. Cain was angry with who? With God. And, and, and Abel becomes just simply the target. How we need to be careful that we're not acting out on people for areas of sin that we're trying to deal with perhaps on our own or hide from God. Or maybe we've got an issue with God about something. Why is that person being blessed when I'm not? And maybe we turn around and we begin to act out on other people because of issues that we're not dealing with before God. Ultimately, when we're dealing with all these things before God, we're not gonna be acting out on other people because we're making ourselves right with God. We're dealing with these things before him, before we can begin to target other people. How we need to be careful of going that way of Cain. Now, we see God doing exactly what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, remember what, what they did? What was their response when they sinned? They hid themselves. And what does God do? He comes walking to the garden. Adam! Where are you? Now look at what God is doing with Cain. God is once again giving Cain an opportunity. He comes to Cain. He says, hey, Cain, where's Abel, your brother? Does God not know where Abel is? No, God knows exactly what's happened. But he's seeking to draw Cain into confession. Why? To repent and get things right with God. He's giving him an opportunity, showing grace and mercy to Cain. But Cain doesn't take the bait. Instead of confessing, Cain just becomes more indignant. Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me? Why don't you ask Abel? I'm not the one in charge of him. He just gets more angry. This guy's got problems, right? This guy's got issues. And knowing that Cain's heart is hardened, God lays out the inevitable repercussions of judgment. In verse 10, we read this. Verse 10, it says, blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. So now what Cain has been doing, you know, for a living, said now this is not going to produce what you want? I think, I think that's the inevitable result of sin as well in our lives, that sin causes us to be less productive. Now, in this case, it's going to be less productive because of the ground that's going to be cursed and, and Cain not being able to do it. But 
I think sin robs us of so much that we don't recognize. I think we think we can get by. We can hide this. But, but sin robs you of being the productive person that God would have you be otherwise in walking in just the abundant, vibrant life in him. Now, there's two interesting pictures we see in Cain's judgment. He's gonna be a fugitive and he's gonna be a vagabond. He'll, he'll never find the peace of God in a life of sin. This has been by Cain's choice. He's chosen this route and now he's gonna see where this leads. God wants to be that refuge for Cain to come and, and, and run into, but Cain would rather run from God and be a fugitive than run to God. Cain's gonna be a vagabond in that he'll never find rest or be at home with God. He's never gonna be in a place where he's just gonna be at rest and at peace. It's a sad reality when you see where sin takes people. See, God is nothing but blessing in store for those that will come humbly to him and, and just simply walk in obedience. It's not hard. God is nothing but blessing, but so often people let sin have control and it robs them of this life and blessing where Cain could be finding peace and safety and a home with God. Now he's gonna be a fugitive on the run from God and a vagabond never finding home and, and never being at rest. What a sad outcome. Verse, verse 13, and Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So here's Cain, and, and he's showing a, a level of grief. But notice this is not repentance, right? It's like when um, Judas, you know, cried the sorrow, but it was not sorrow of repentance, or, or um, uh, Esau in the same way. It was not that sorrow of repentance. Here's Cain, he's upset over the consequences of his, of his sin, but not over the sin itself. Do we grieve over sin, period? Or are we just trying to spare ourselves from the consequences? Maybe we're upset or grieving over the consequences of sin and not the sin itself. Man, I pray that we go right to the source and recognize the, the, that sin is what's causing all these things that are hurting, that are, are not helpful, that are, are, are leading me away from God, and that we deal rightly with sin. And we don't just mourn over the, the, the outfall or the consequences of the sin, but rather we deal with sin right at its core. Barnhouse said this, one of the consequences of sin is that it makes the sinner pity himself instead of causing him to turn to God. One of the first signs in new life is that the individual takes sides with God against himself. And that's ultimately what, you know, confession is. Confession is saying the same thing that God says about it. It's saying, God, I agree with you, this was wrong. I did wrong. 
I sinned, and I broke your word, your commands. You're agreeing with God. You're siding yourself with God against yourself, in a sense. That's what confession is. And Cain should have been quick to realize the error of his way and turn from it and turn to God because repentance then aligns us back with God. But Cain didn't do that. Now, though there would be judgment for Cain, notice we just see incredible grace as well. Because God doesn't just send Cain away, say, well, you, you deal with the consequences. No, he puts a mark on him to protect him. That's grace. I mean, God didn't have to do that. But God's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put protection around you right now. And all of Cain's days, he'd be a walking reminder to people of God's grace. They would see the mark and know that, that that's a sign of God's grace God's hand upon him. May we be that walking reminder wherever we are, whoever we're with, just that walking reminder of the grace of God that we didn't deserve anything, but we have everything because of God and his grace. Now, we don't know what that mark was, all right? Again, lots of speculation. Uh, no idea. I'm not even gonna try to tell you what it was, but... Um, yeah, I think it was a tattoo, actually. I think tattoos are biblical. For those of you that think it's bad to have tattoos, no, I have no idea. We'll leave it at that. Look at verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And please, nobody enter into the land of Nod here tonight, okay? And Cain, verse 17, knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Now, it's a sad occasion that Cain, what happened? He went out from the presence of the Lord. It's just a sad reality. Because God's desire is for people to dwell with him. Do you understand that the whole kind of story of God's word is seeking to bring people into communion and fellowship and into his presence. That's why we see the you know, things leading to the tabernacle, then into the temple, and then Jesus coming on. And, and it's all about bringing people into fellowship with the Lord. And yet here's Cain now sadly going away from or going out from the presence of the Lord. This goes so contrary to what God's heart is for us. And I pray that we're those that are, are, are just seeing the, the great privilege of having access to the very presence of God, to come before him and, and spend time with him. What a, what a blessing that is. I, I think, I'll tell you, I fail to comprehend just the importance and the value of that. Oh, I, I try to do that every day, but I think I I failed to really understand the greatness that God who created everything, who's so much higher and greater than us, he actually is interested in us and wanting to be with us. That's pretty huge, isn't it? What a, what a privilege that is. And I pray that we take him up on that often. And that in just everything we're doing, we're just living with that constant consciousness of of God and, and just dwelling in his presence in whatever we're doing. That's not compartmentalized in our lives, but that it's just an ongoing daily fellowship with God who desires to be with us. Now, 
Interestingly, Cain dwelt in the land of Nod, and Nod means wandering. That's exactly the fate of those that depart from God. <laughs> they're just like wandering aimlessly. They've lost kind of the plot of, of life. They, they're wandering around with no direction because they've forsaken the very one of whom life is all about, the very one that holds life, the very one that life is centered in. And when you depart from him, well, you're just left to be a wandering fool wondering, what is this all about? What do I do? Where do I go? You've forsaken the very one that is the only one able to lead you and fulfill you and, and just give you life. So Cain is in a place of wandering. But then we see Cain begins to have a family and his posterity and their accomplishments are, are listed here. Now one of the apologetic questions that people love to ask is, where did Cain get his wife? I think this is the big Bible stumper like, there had to have been other people. Where did Cain get his wife? Right? And people think this is going to devalue the, the word of God or, you know, show the word of God to, to not be true. The, the truth is, Cain would have married one of his sisters, maybe a niece. But it was, it was his family. There, there's been a number of years that has transpired. Remember, these guys were living long ages, right? There's been a long period of time, even as we saw in chapter four, verse three, that and in the process of time could be the idea that there's been a, a period of time that's been unfolding. And we know that Adam and Eve, chapter five, verse three, says that Adam and Eve had other children, including daughters. And it was not written, the law was not written yet to where it, it says in Deuteronomy 27, verse 22, not to marry your, your sister, you know, or, or to be with your sister or even a half-sister. But that predated the law here now. In fact, Abraham, and Sarah, Sarah was his half-sister. They predated the law. Wasn't wrong. And in this time, right, uh, genetically, the, the people here were still very pure. There was no risk of, of inbreeding or any kind of you know, defect kind of happening because of that. The, the family lines were still very pure. And so there was no, no risk of anything. And that was the only option they had right? Marrying within their family. So really no puzzle, no kind of challenge to the word of God at all. Just a, a, a different time where it wasn't uh, uh, a taboo thing, of course. So Cain has a son, Enoch. Now it's different Enoch from uh, who we will see in Genesis 5. But notice what Cain does next. He builds a city. Builds a city. What did God say that Cain would be? Uh, fugitive and a vagabond. He'd be just kind of wandering around. But now Cain builds a city. It's almost like he's kind of doing this in sort of animosity or kind of like uh, defiance against God. Sort of like, ah, I'm going to shove this back in your face. I'm going to do what I want to do, God. And he builds a city. And then he names the city after his son, Enoch. Enoch means dedicated. There was no attempt to dedicate this work to God. They're, again, looking to kind of make a name for themselves. It's very reminiscent of what we'll see with the Tower of Babel, where, again, that didn't bode well for them. Trying to make a name for themselves. And, and here they are as well, naming cities after their children, trying to make a name for themselves, and going opposite from what God said the case would be for them. It's just seeming like just ongoing open rebellion against God. Now, 
we come to another first in Genesis, verse 19. The first polygamist. Yikes. Verse 19, then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He sees the father of those, or he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of uh, of all those who play the harp and the flute. And as for Zila, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. So Lamech is going to be a shifty kind of guy. We'll see as we move along here. And, and not a bright fellow taking two wives. What's the matter with you? That's just not wise, right? Ada means ornament. Perhaps she was very pretty. And Zillah means shade. Perhaps she only looked pretty when she was in the dark. But here's this kind of contrast and more so probably <laughs> probably conflict that's going on now, right? It's just not a good thing when you are, are trying to you know, bring in two equal loves. It, it, it's not a good thing. You cannot love one and equally love the other. It's a principle shown to us on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 tells us that. It's not going to, again, go well for Lamech. It's not going to go well when we try to divide, you know, loyalties and loves in our lives. So as these families grow, so does industry and creativity. We're seeing in the city a self-dependency. Things are growing. Things are becoming productive, but... They're doing it all, again, for themselves. They had everything except God. A very sad state for them. Now, what's also interesting is, is here we are just in Genesis 4. And, and it is pretty amazing to see the kinds of, uh, of production and, and organization, um, industry forming. What do we often see in you know, textbooks that the first man, they were just a bunch of cavemen. They're just carrying clubs around, you know, and they're just clubbing one another and living in caves. And yet, what do we see that, you know, the first people were very bright, very smart, very wise. I think, you know, God created them in, in his image. I mean, these were, were smart people. I think what we've seen is kind of the, I don't want to use the word de-evolution, but you've seen that, that progression go kind of the opposite way from what God has intended, right? Now, yes, we've seen a lot of things happen just within the course of time as we've begun to discover certain things. We've seen things be invented that are very helpful, and that's just from the process of time, but I think, man, you, you, if you had these people going for a long period of time, you would have seen some incredible things, no doubt. But here we see just the city and the production, the industry forming here. But then in verse 23, then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. Here's the first poem that we see in God's word. This is kind of a, a poetic thing that Lamech is saying. For I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So here's kind of this, again, deterioration of a man like Lamech. First polygamy, then murder. But then he takes it further by kind of boasting in the fact that he's going to take out anyone that tries to seek vengeance upon him. 
he's kind of boasting in his own might and saying, nobody's going to take me down, is sort of what he's saying. If Cain was going to be avenged, you know, um, uh, 77-fold, then Lamech 77-fold. I'm going to see to it that nobody is going to lay a hand on me. Nobody's going to want to mess with me. This is Lamech just kind of boasting in his power. And again, coming from this line of Cain, we just see that there's no interest in God. There's no looking to God. There's no talk of God. How, how sad. It doesn't take long. How we need to be training up our children in the things of God, in the ways of God, speaking highly of God, bringing God into all that we're doing here, pointing one another to him. Now listen, verse 25 begins to provide some hope for us. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What a great verse right there. See, previously, Cain's family, not talking about God, not looking to God, but now God will always see that there will be a remnant, there will be a people that will seek to make him known. That's kind of the idea of of calling upon the name of the Lord, no doubt coming in, in, in worship of the Lord, calling out to God, prayer dependent on God, but that idea also has with it that they were proclaiming the name of the Lord. They were being witnesses, they were talking about the Lord with other people. They were pointing people to God. They became witnesses of who he is and all he's done. Now this ends again, chapter four, and chapter four ends this second Toledot or generations. And, and these divisions in, in Genesis oftentimes have this flow where you're seeing kind of the, the fallout of sin and the trouble that it brings, but then kind of ends with this sort of glimmer of hope right? Seth comes onto the scene. He's the one, the line that the Messiah is going to come from. And here's Eve again. Oh, the Lord has appointed another. That's what the name Seth means, appointed. That God's appointed another seed. I'm sure she's thinking, this is the one now. Cain didn't turn out too well, Genesis 3.15, but now I've got another that's been appointed to me that's going to take out that enemy. Ah, Sorry, Eve, you're going to still have to wait a few thousand years for that to happen. But there's that hope that God is not done that God's promises are still brewing, still in play. And God brings another person here to where, again, there's that remnant of people that are turning to God, looking to God, calling out to the Lord, and living as witnesses of him. That's so important and so huge. And I pray that we're being just like that, those witnesses that are, are, are carrying out that witness and testifying of Yahweh, our, our great God, and making him known as we look to him, depend on him, and, and call out to him. Listen, chapter five, we're gonna move through this quickly because I know, well, we're doing okay, but chapter five, we're gonna move through it, it quickly here. And there's just kind of one key thing. I'm sure many of you have seen this um, presentation from chapter five. Uh, from me, I've done it a couple times. I know Steve, um, Godly did it in his presentation a, a, a few months back, but chapter five points out why we need God. Because 
sins effects are in full swing. As you go through chapter five, it's like you're walking through a graveyard. Like I said at the beginning of this message, we will see repeated eight times in this chapter that phrase, and he died. That's the fallout of sin, the sad consequences of sin. Sin is not something to play around with. Look at verse one. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Isn't that great? Just, again, just that equal, equalness here between them, that, that equality with man and woman. And Adam, verse three, lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So here's the life of Adam. Uh, doesn't go through all of his children, but again, points out the line of Seth here. And then we'll go through the line of Seth, starting in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 15, Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. So here we see um, the, the days of Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, and Jared. Now, though we're looking at the, the line of Adam, all we're focused on is the line of Seth. And that's important because it's the line of Seth that, like I said, is going to bring in the Messiah. This is the line that the biblical account is truly concerned with, focused on, and looking at because it's all about Jesus Christ here. Now in verse 21, it says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So Enoch is a very, very interesting character here now. He's a fun study. He's one of only two people in the Bible that didn't die. Enoch and who else? Elijah. Elijah. There you go, Bible scholars. Enoch and Elijah, the only two people that never died. Some believe that it is going to be Enoch and Elijah that is going to show up in Revelation as the two witnesses. Others believe, no, it's got to be Moses and Elijah. We don't know exactly, but it's appointed once for man to die in the judgment. And so since Enoch and Elijah haven't died, it could be that they're the two that will come again. Speculation, we don't know exactly. But Enoch is translated, he's taken up to God and he's a picture of the church. 
that is raptured up to Jesus before the tribulation. Hebrews 11, verse 5 to 6 says, By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, Enoch was a man of faith who walked with God. Somebody said that Enoch would just walk with God so closely every day. And then eventually his days went on. They would go with God and then return home and then walk with God the next day. And eventually he went to turn home and God just said, you know what, Enoch, you're closer to my home. Why don't you just come with me? And so God took him. Fun story. Obviously not the way that the biblical account tells it. But so Enoch is taken up, raptured up. I think just a great picture of the church. And what's interesting is that Methuselah is born from Enoch. And um, I'm just wondering, you know what, I'll get into that. I'll get into that later here. Let me hit verse 25. Finish up the chapter. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. He's the oldest person that lived. And again, the reason that people are living so long is because the conditions of the earth at this time, right? When God created the earth, uh, many believe he created it with this kind of canopy over the earth that just allowed it to be like this beautiful tropical paradise all around the world. And it wasn't until the flood that that was kind of broken open and, and the flood just sort of changed everything uh, here now in the earth. But up until that time, I mean, people were just living in this great perfect condition on the earth, you know, um, not being affected by, you know, UV uh, rays coming in and all the different problems and things that we might have today. And so they're living long lives. And there's Methuselah, the longest one, 969 years. That's incredible. So verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died and Noah was 500 years old and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So there's the days primarily of Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah listed there. So we've got all together uh, 10 names, not including Noah's sons at the, the last, you know, the last three there at the end, but 10 names represented here in the line of Seth from, uh, from Adam to Noah. Now, what's interesting is when you put these names together and you look at their, what their names mean, and, and again, people, people's names carried with it great importance. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh meant mortal. Canaan meant sorrel. Mahalalel meant the blessed God. Jared meant shall come down Enoch meant teaching. Methuselah meant his death shall bring. Lamech meant powerful. And Noah meant rest or comfort. And when you put all that together, we read this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the powerful rest. Can you believe that, that right there in Genesis 5, we've got the gospel account laid out for us. 
God's plan of redemption hidden right here within a genealogy of Genesis. That's amazing. You'll never convince me that a group of Jewish rabbis deliberately contrived to hide the Christian gospel right here in a genealogy within their their venerated Torah. It wouldn't have happened. And here's God just laying it out for us so wonderfully from this line that's going to bring the Messiah. That's all pointing again to Jesus and that Jesus is going to bring this great rest or salvation for us. So wonderful how God's word is put together, isn't it? Now, what's cool is that, as I mentioned, Enoch is a great picture of the church. Now, many believe that as Methuselah's name meant his death shall bring, many believe that when Methuselah died, that's when the flood would come. And so in chapter six, as we're gonna get into right now, no, I'm just kidding, we won't do that. Next time we'll get into chapter six as we, as we look at, you know, the preparation of Noah. Uh, boy, chapter six, we're gonna look at some interesting stuff. I know you guys are all excited for that. Giants on the earth and uh, sons of God came in the daughters of men. Boy, oh boy, we'll get into some of that fun scripture here. But many believe that Methuselah, that God was going to, you know, not bring the flood and this judgment until Methuselah died. What's interesting is that Methuselah lived the longest of anybody. In other words, God's never quick to bring judgment. That's never God's heart, is he gives people an opportunity to repent. He gives people an opportunity to come to him. We've seen that with Cain here tonight. God is a God of love, wishing that no one perishes. And so, The day that Methuselah died, the flood would come, and so he gave Methuselah the longest life. But before that flood would come, and before all that, Enoch is taken up to heaven. He escapes this impending judgment. I believe, again, that's exactly what God has planned for the church. That, as 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, or or 5.9, I always get them mixed up, but um, he's not appointed us under wrath, but to obtain salvation. And so God's not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. He's not going to bring the church through the tribulation. He's going to rapture up the church before the tribulation comes, just as we see with Enoch, who is taken out before the judgment comes. And I think Noah then becomes a great picture of Israel, who God preserves through the flood, as God will do with Israel through the tribulation, because that's a time where God is going to be working with, again, uh, specifically with Israel during the tribulation. He's not done with Israel yet. And so we see that happening through the tribulation, God renewing that work in Israel. So Genesis, just right here in the first few chapters, kind of pointing ahead to some of these things that are gonna be unfolding in in future days, things that we have uh, to look forward to. And boy, I believe that the Lord is coming soon when you see all that is going on, right? And when we look at the wickedness in Genesis 6, um, and we just look at what's going on in our world, we just kind of go, Lord, how much longer? Well, we don't know. I believe it's soon, but in the meantime, we do know that we got work to do. And we keep living for Jesus, and we keep putting the good news out for people like this family of Seth that called on the name of the Lord. Let us be representing him and talking much about the Lord with others and pointing people to Jesus, our only hope in all of these things. All right, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word here tonight. Thank you for just these wonderful things that you, you bring up in your word here. Um, things that we could sometimes overlook or not think about, and yet, God, you've put such wonderful truths right there in your word. Um, and I pray that we would take these things to heart as we see the example of Cain here tonight. We recognize that each of us has sin lying at the door, ready to pounce, and, and how we need to master that. We have a choice. We, we can follow you and allow you to have rule and preeminence in our lives, or we can feed the flesh. And I pray that we would see that there's nothing good that comes when we play around with sin. There's nothing good that ever comes of it. May we choose to follow you and to follow you obediently and lovingly and loyally, Lord, and, and to honor you with our lives. And I pray that as we do, we would be living as that witness in the world. Time is short. And we pray for our loved ones that are, are perishing apart from you. We pray, God, that you would save them. God, that they would have their heart and their eyes open to you and to your free gift of salvation, the grace that's been bestowed upon them. I pray that their hearts would be open to that. They would receive you as their Savior, Lord. As we think about those that need your salvation, would you save them, God, and, and help us just to be instrumental in that. Give us boldness. Give us faith, God, to trust you and lean upon you for those things. We continue to pray for our nation, God, that you would turn us back to you. We pray for the U.S. as they're going through a time right now that could easily just bring about more turmoil. We pray that you would turn them back to you, God. And God, just bring peace there. And Lord, we pray Maranatha comes soon. We look forward to being with you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.